When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you can save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. If you feel there's more to life than iPhones and iPads and mindless consumerism, if you're open to receiving information in all forms in any number of ways, if organized religion, organized political movements, and any kind of collectivism doesn't just quite cut it for you, if you engage in critical thinking, if you think for yourself, if you have peace and love in your heart and Jack Daniels in your bloodstream, if you believe that seriousness is a disease, if you're curious, then come, let us go on a journey together as we explore the outer limits of inner truth. Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show, OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, if you're familiar with The Walking Dead, and no, we do not mean the American public, we mean the hit TV series, The Walking Dead, you're in for a real treat. As we have writer, novelist, Mr. Jay Bonazinga. Mr. Jay Bonazinga is a top writer on The Walking Dead. And the reason why we're featuring him tonight is because I met him. And when I met him, I was talking to him very quickly. I just could feel that he was very creative. And reading his work, it was amazing about some of the stories that he had written. They were so in-depth and so thorough, and they presented uh, so many lessons. And I thought it would be interesting to feature him. Well, after the Virtues did the analysis on him, they were very surprised to learn that he actually was somebody very famous throughout history. And you're going to learn who that famous person is. So... Without further ado, the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show proudly presents a forensic soul analysis on Mr. Jay Bonazinga. Our guest today on the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show is Mr. Jay Bonazinga. He's an American writer, a director, and he's the author of The Walking Dead novels. This gentleman has written several books. And he's impacted millions of lives with his great works. Mr. Bonazinga, welcome to the program. Wow, I've impacted lives. That's an awesome intro. Well, absolutely, sir. When I, you, sound, I sound like the Red Cross or something. That's right. When you go to these Walking Dead conventions and you see these people immersed in these characters and you wonder where those characters came from, well, you know, Mr. Bonazinga, that's the mind, that's the doorway. <laughs> yeah, I, it is. It is. It is r really amazing to see what they call nowadays cosplay, where people are dressed up as characters that you've conceived. You know, now many of them were, you know, taken from the pages of the comic book in the case of the Walking Dead novels. But still, I've sort of been the steward of some of the main characters in in the novels. And I'm starting to see people dressed up as them, and it's really it's, – It's got to be surreal. It's an obscure pleasure that I never knew that I would experience. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. You know, before we even go into The Walking Dead, first off, I want to let everyone know where they can learn more about you and learn more about your books. And the website is J, and I'll spell the last name for you, B-O-N-A-N-S-I-N-G-A. Uh, Jake, can you please tell us a little bit about your, your new book that you've written? It's called Lucid. 
Yeah, Lucid is <clears throat> the product of about five years of work, and you know, one or two of those years was spent almost solely um, in terms of the book, uh, researching dreams and, and sleep research. Um, I'm, I've always been fascinated by dreams. I've always wanted a lucid dream, which is simply the ability to recognize you're having a dream while you're having one. And it may sound like no big deal, but it's a small percentage of the population on this planet can do that. And once you can do that, you can govern the events of your dream. It's, it's just, it's just mind blowing what uh, lucid dreaming can do for you. It's, it's just, a, it's, it's the new frontier really. And um, I could never do it. So maybe out of that frustration, <laughs> I created, uh, you know, um, a, a, an epic story revolving around an 18 year old girl who's a prodigy at it. She, she doesn't even know her skills. They're so, they're so, um, magnificent. So and they, what are some of the yeah. skill sets of a person who's got a, who can do lucid dreaming? What would you say would be some of their advantages? Like what knowledge and information and power are they capable of, of ha holding? Well, it's, it's certainly, it, it, it's, it's, it's inner space, first of all. Um, but that is kind of the last frontier for, for one reason, for myriad reasons. But one is there's so much we do not know about the human brain still to this day. That really is the last scientific frontier. And obviously, we, we're learning more and more um, with each passing day, you know, literally, with the new scan, you know, uh, scanning we can do and locating s sections of the brain. But sleep is still the great mystery. And REM sleep, uh, rapid eye movement, where this is where dreams live, that is the most mysterious and mo most deep level of sleep. And we're, we, we still... There's so much we don't know about it, but I believe that lucid dreaming is, you know, a, an amazing um, human potential, I think, you know. And I'm not even sure that we can't teach each other to lucid dream. Uh, I, that, uh, the book kind of explores that. Um, so where do you, I just where do you explore the book? Like, where do, what, are, what are some of the idea of where the plot line goes? Well, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there are, you know, there's such, there's such things as mnemonics where that you can plant little teasers in your brain. Um, and the, the girl, Lori Blaine, who's the, the, the hero of the book, um, she's haunted by a door in her dreams and it probably takes hold of her after a while more than she, she has hold of it. It's, it comes from her subconscious, but then it sort of develops a life of its own, and she's afraid of it, and she's terrified of it. And the book, Lucid, is about her finally working up the nerve through the advice of a therapist to go through that door, literally, in her dream, which she can do because she's a lucid dreamer. So she can turn to where the door is lurking, as it does on all the peripheries of all her dreams, you know, and she finally goes through that door. Um, but me being a horror author... Uh, <laughs> Thing, things go horribly awry, of course. So what does she – does she want to go into a doorway and she's like, oh, you know, the doorway was to hell. It wasn't to – Yeah, uh, I, you know, that, that's, <laughs> that, that's a good uh, a good teaser. Uh, yeah. It's, it's actually – my whole idea was that dreams are a universe unto themselves. This is the 
sort of the theory that the book the book is a very straightforward uh psych you know uh supernatural thriller really on one level um in fact it's my first young adult novel um so it's a very um precise sort of linear story that's really easy to um absorb but I, what i try to do is give it you know a whole slew of levels beneath the surface that you could uh enjoy um subtext and you know the whole idea of a collective unconscious and the whole idea that our dreams are connected to other people's dreams i saw the dream space as an entire universe um we i call i call it in the book rem space because that's what she finds on the other side of that door it's almost like a backstage and she can go into a labyrinth that exists behind people's dreams wow and you know when we talked at the top of the show people when they hear the introduction they're going to say well why are you taking a metaphysical approach or why are you focusing on Mr. on the singer's work and i think that if anyone reads your books especially the one book i really enjoyed which was the rise of the governor thank you very very descriptive with these characters and it almost reminded me when i was reading the was getting the book of uh, that movie west craven's uh, the new nightmare where the mm-hmm. character is kind of like driving him and he has no choice but to put the character into work in order to contain the character because these characters come out as so real and so what i'd like to know is what are what are the inspiration behind these characters? Are you just taking observational perspectives from people that you see and incorporating them to new people? Like you literally are building uh, reality of, of people that are fully functional. It's it's quite yeah. fascinating. Well, thank you. Um, I appreciate that, and um, that's what I try to do. I mean, the, a, a fantasist, someone who deals in fictional metaphysics, uh, like myself, um, you know. There, my and our number one prime directive is suspension of disbelief. I want you to forget that you're reading a fantasy novel and start to just follow it as a narrative that's actually happening. In fact, the Walking Dead books, for numerous reasons, they, they, we use a, a graphic novel as our Rosetta Stone. That's where the whole Walking Dead universe started. And, um, when I started working on the books, I decided to write them in present tense um, because it's immediate and it's gut wrenching. And it's the it's it's also sort of a nod, a tip of the hat to graphic novels, which are are closer to film than uh, prose, than than literary novels. Um, But, you know, that's. You ask a great question because that's where all the tricks of the trade lie. That's where the craft of telling stories lies is knowing exactly how much detail you need to include, how much backstory, how much texture to get that reader to believe this is really happening, to suspend their disbelief and really follow it as though it were documentary. Okay. Are there particular characters that you've created over the years in some of your many books that you feel have reached a powerful emotional chord with people? Like if you could think of like the two or three biggest emotionally provocative characters you've created, can you please go in a little bit more detail about who those characters were and why you feel they have connected with people? That's a wonderful question for me, especially because 
I, you know, there are two characters that have really resonated and people remark on them and I get mail and stuff uh, about. Um, and one, of course, is the governor. Um, in fact, the governor was a gentleman named Philip in the original graphic novel. And he was and he, you know, he was a he was a bad, you know, dude. He was he was a, a you know, a dastardly villain, scary dude. But Robert Kirkman, who created him and who I worked with on these first four novels that I've written, I'm working on the second four right now, and it's, I'm, I'm sort of on my own on those. But these first four that I wrote for The Walking Dead, Robert was working close, closely with me. He'd give me an outline, and I would turn that into a novel. And I had to flesh, literally, no pun intended, flesh this, you know, this guy, Philip, out. I gave him a last name. I gave, I gave him a background, a wife, a, a hometown, a childhood, an alcoholic father, um, all this texture, this backstory, which was the, our purpose, our goal in the novel. And then, I, I you know, for those of, of the, your listeners who have not uh, read it, um, there's a huge twist at the end of the book where you learn that Philip Blake is not who you think he is. And um, it just, people love it. I mean, even David Morrissey, who played the governor on the television series, loved that book and studied it. Literally, he's, he's, he's mentioned it in public, and he's told me behind the scenes, you know, that it was, it was uh, informative and it informed his performance. And so that was one. And then the other one, I'll just very be very brief. She's the character that I'm working on now. Um, because without, you know, you know, giving a spoiler, um, we move from the governor to a new hero, anti-hero hero named Lily Call. Um, and she I, I adore this woman. I mean, I know she could die at any moment. <laughs> and it terrifies me because nobody is safe in, in this world. Um, but I, I completely offloaded my wife, Jilly, ironically, who rhymes with Lily, uh, into Lily Call. I gave her Lily Call Jilly's sense of style, her ripped jeans, her tats, you know, her, her beads, her piercings, the way she talks, the way she walks, her body type. And it, and it just, and I, one of the artists rendered her for one of the books, I think it was Fall of the Governor Part Two, and it looked like my wife. You know, Good. without even telling, nobody even knew, you know, and I, I, I tell this in public once in a while, you know, it's no, it's no big secret that Lil, Lily is based on my wife, but, you know, I think that's, I think that's why your question was so good. And I think that's why I'm rambling on and on about it and why all authors really do this to some extent or another. Do you find that when you're creating some of these characters that you're almost specifically trying to incorporate distinctive personality characteristics of people that are very close to you with the idea subconsciously of immortalizing them within the pages of literary fiction? Well, I'd be lying if I said no. <laughs> <laughs> I am doing that. I'm sure I am. I maybe sometimes maybe sometimes unconsciously I'm I'm doing that, you know. Um but you know it's it's a profound process it, it's not just tipping you know your hat to your aunt edna you know 
Um, because at least for me, um, the character is the narrative. The character is the story. Um, I learned how to write um, through studying Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. And Joseph Campbell was a, was a professor at Princeton. Um, and in the 70s, I think, he uh, wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And that changed my life. Um, because his, his theory was all, all of our stories, great and small, from the Bible and the Quran and, and the Torah to, you know, um, a B movie that you saw in the multiplex last Saturday, all of our stories have a mono myth at their heart. And it has to do with a hero and their journey that they go on. And I, I, once I learned that, oh my God, it was, it was like, it, it really was like a, like a child learning to get up on two wheels and ride a two wheel bike. I, I've never, ever gone back on that ever since I learned it. It was a revelation to me. So when I do bring attributes of my loved ones and friends and, and, you know, people I know and I'm fascinated by into the story, it has to become the story. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense, and I want to go a little bit uh, – step back and go a little further deeper and say where does your inspiration come from a lot of your stories? How do you does – it, does it come from then you get an inspiration? What really inspires you to, to write a story? Well, the hero's journey I think is is my biggest inspiration because I'll look at I'll, – I'll, I'll, I'll look at an idea that I might have from a nightmare that I had the night before, which has happened a few times. Uh, it'll be just an amorphous blob of, of imagery and, you know, events. And, uh, you know, I, I will, I will ask myself, you know, what is the, uh, arc, the journey that the character would go on? Where does it begin and where does it end? I always know where my stories end. And if I can't come up with a great ending, before I even begin to write the first letter, I can't write the story. Wow. I have to know what the ending is. And that's really, you know, once I have that, talk about inspiration. I mean, once I have an ending that I'm confident and I love and I really am, am fired up about, um, the rest is pure pleasure. It's like sliding down a hill on a toboggan. <laughs> um, I know, and I've done it long enough that I know how to calibrate a story. And, and I, and I learned from the masters. I learned from, from Harper Lee, who wrote the To Kill a Mockingbird, which is my favorite book of all time. And, you know, when people argue with me and they say, well, that's not what I was told by my English professor when I was, <laughs> my English professor said, you know, just start writing and see where the story takes you. And have the characters talk to you and, and tell you where, where they want to go. And I, I just, I just think of Harper Lee and I think of how she began, uh, to kill a mockingbird. And I, and I can't, I wish I could quote it to you verbatim, but it, it, it's something like, you know, you open up the book, really the great American novel, I would, I would argue, and, and you go to the first page and there, and, and it has the voice of a young girl and she's she's talking to you intimately right off the bat and she says something like my brother and I were 
arguing about uh, where, just where it all began. Now, now, my brother thinks it began with a broken arm, but, but I, I have to say I think it began earlier than that with the arrival of, of our neighbor. Okay, well, that's my proof right there because you could not begin a novel like that if you did not know the ending. So that's really wild that you have to have a definitive ending. And I want to just go a little bit further with this as far as your writing style goes. What is your uh, feeling about God and uh, life altogether? Do you feel um, that this is a one-shot thing, that you, you've been on earth before? Do you have a, uh, any particular spiritual practices that you're into? Do you have an interest in religion? Um, yes, Uh Yes, yes, comma, and yes. Uh, <laughs> I have, um, well, first of all, I was raised Catholic, um, and, but I'm not observant. I don't, I'm, I don't consider myself a Catholic. Um, I consider myself, after giving it a lot of thought and, you know, being on this earth for 56 years, I consider myself an agnostic in every sense of that word. Um, I'm agnostic about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. I'm agnostic about where we're going, about the, the future of mankind, about uh, everything, everything I'm agnostic about. I just don't know, and that's the beauty of the world to me. If I knew, I would be depressed. I think it's depressing to know deep in your heart what happens to us after we die that's just my own personal belief it depresses me to think that i would know for sure what's going to happen the moment my heart stops beating for the last time i don't want to know that's how i want to live that's what's the that's the beautiful thing about life to me is the not knowing i i think you know atheists and 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 supremely devout religious people are closer um, then you would first think, because I think they fall into a group that believes they know for sure what happens, and it is the big mystery. Um, you know, like like Pete Townsend said, I'm a seeker, and I will not know until the day I die. Is there anything that has occurred in your life that kind of pushed you in the direction, or actually helped foster your your current belief pattern at this point? That's an awesome question. Um, I think about that a lot. I've never really settled on one answer. I, you know, it probably began when, when the Catholic priests um, threatened to kick my mom and dad out of the church for using birth control in 1964. Um, that really pissed me off. <laughs> and I was only like eight years old um, or, you know, five years old. But my, my mom and dad left the church after, shortly after that. Um, and, you know, sort of lost their religion, although my dad is still very devoutly Catholic, but they do it sort of from a distance. Um, but that started my questioning. And, and I grew up as a person who just, you know, always gravitated toward the, the people on, 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 in the world who questioned authority. We're always questioning, questioning. Whether, whether it's someone who's, you know, a, a Marxist, Leninist, you know, atheist you know or or someone who's a you know who's, who's a pentecostal you know southern preacher you question everything and i've never stopped doing that i think that's I, i've never really 
This, it's a wonderful question, Ryan. I've, I've never really gone back that far, but I think that's my primal moment when I was a kid and I watched my mom and dad go, wait a minute, you know. <laughs> Jake, there is a quote, I forget who said it, that all writers are moralists, that all reporters or writers to some degree inject their moral um, or morality into the work that they, that they do and it is seen. And I want to bring something to the readers or listeners' attention that I've personally observed about the work that you do is that if you look in some of the novels and you go through the characters, I almost feel like you give the character every possible opportunity to the very end of their demise the chance to redeem themselves, the chance to do the right thing, and it is only when they decide single-handedly to go about their way that they meet their own demise. I found that uh, quite amazing and see that cool. resonate in so many different characters. And I was wondering if there are any kind of moral lessons that you teach um, your audience through your work. That's, you know, that's wonderful to hear. I mean, you know, I try to do that. I mean, um, and I agree with that, uh, incidentally, that, that point of view that all writers are on some level moralists um, it's the same reason why you cannot make a documentary film without a point of view. It's not possible. I, I think many, many people, or there are people that don't understand the dynamic, which is the minute you choose a word and put it in a, or choose a shot and put it in a series of shots, you're, you are making a statement about something like morality or, in, you know, on a deeper level, morality itself, because you're, 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 you're creating a point of view. And um, that's what makes it so interesting to me. I think that's what makes reading so wonderful for people. They get, and especially if you're reading something by someone who maybe has a different morality than you. Th those books are fascinating. Sometimes you want to throw them across the room, but... I think that's what makes life rich is to is to ex enjoy and experience as many um, as many points of view as possible, which I'm probably sounding like a card carrying agnostic right now <laughs> as I'm saying that. <laughs> well, you know, it, you you have your perspective. You are who you are. And, I, you know, I don't know why people can't just accept people for who they are. Yeah, so, right. So, and also celebrate the yeah, differences. So. I mean, that's what makes the tapestry, the, you know, the patchwork quilt so fascinating, you know. And it's also the imperfection that makes reading and listening and viewing art so fascinating. It's because no art is perfect. It's not designed to be perfect. Um, nor are we as people. That's what makes it so – it's the grain in the wood that makes the wood beautiful, you know. Um, and, and that's why I, I, I often find it more difficult to defend a work of art that I love when it's being lambasted or cut down by a critic. I, I, I invite, I invite all your listeners to try next time if they disagree with somebody about a movie or a book and, and the, their point of view is that the book is great. And, and their friend or, you know, the other person is cutting it down. Just take note of how hard it is to defend, to defend a movie or a book. It's because the imperfection is part of the beauty of it. Okay. And 
Does that make sense? Yeah, because you, it's, you know, it's actually, easy. No, it makes total sense that, you know, you really want to go a little farther, but some people, they, they may not want to look that deep and that far. And I don't know how this is going to sound, Jay, but I actually think that some of the work that you do, there's this, there's some, there's a belief idea or an idea that there is not, that God is not outside of us, that we are all particles of God. And I think about the work that you do, and here you are creating characters very detailed to the, the idea that they come alive on screen and they go about their way and you set a task and they have to go from point A to point B. I kind of wonder, what is the comparable difference between some of the characters you create and compared to what human beings are in waking reality? Is there any comparable difference? I mean, you see that they're on a, a screen. Who's to say that, we're, that there's someone else is not creating us? Yeah, that's that's a, a fabulous um, way to articulate it. I mean, you know, the only difference, well, I say the only difference, it's an enormous monolithic difference, but the difference is that reality is a th- uh, infinitely more complex. And and the, I think what we do, I mean, maybe this is a great way to, <laughs> maybe um, what I'm trying to do is come to the third act of our conversation and tie it together. And I should have known the ending before I started. But um, <laughs> I think, you know, this is the, this concept uh, of complexity. And, you know, uh, physicists have written about it uh, on a mathematical level. But it's what makes life beautiful. And I think artists are trying to capture a tiny little fragment of, com- of the complexity of real life. And I think a person could be happier if you embrace the complexity and the imperfection of life. You know, I have, I have friends who are unhappy and lonely because they're looking for perfection. You're you're very well known for The Walking Dead, and if anyone out there is not aware of The Walking Dead at this point, long story short, the world is engulfed by a zombie apocalypse, and the difference between The Walking Dead and some of these other movies that are out there is that you have these characters that are so richly developed that you, you kind of relate to very personally, and I'm curious to know, why do you think that many people are obsessed or have this great fascination with apocalyptic-type living um, do you think that you find it fascinating that they would be so intrigued by a reality where everything's awful? And right now, I mean, the world the way it is, it seems to be so much better off the way it was years ago. I mean, now the fact that you have, you know, electricity, running water, right? You know, a lot of a lot of things that people went through hundreds of years ago, you're not going through right now. So, well, is there a particular reason why you feel people are so fascinated by the apocalyptic scenario of The Walking Dead? I think it's. I think it's the same re- the same reason that people are attracted to religion. Um, it's a way of making sense of something that seems so dark and and hard to grasp, uh, i.e., the end of the world, death, transition, evolution. Um, you know what's on the other side. What happens to our families? What is the meaning of our life? I, I, I think, you know, the, the zombie apocalypse, I think of it as a winnowing. It winnows away the stuff that doesn't matter. And you find these characters asking themselves, 
okay, you know what? I don't have the BMW anymore, and I don't have the, you know, the condo. All I have is this gun, you know, this this tent and my two kids. And now I know what really matters, you know. And it's it's Robert Kirkman says it in jest, but I think there's something profound deeper than uh, beneath what he says, which is I think people love to read stories and tune into shows and watch people who have worse problems than their own. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I think. I think that's true, and that helps them deal with their real problems in life. You see people making some kind of sense and winnowing away the stuff that doesn't matter, and it's fascinating to me. You know, I tell people it, it The Walking Dead is not really about the zombies. You know, it's about the survival. Have you guys ever considered – taking a metaphysical approach or actually having a character that has some kind of psychic ability that would elaborate a little bit more as to why things were be, were happening, why there was a zombie apocalypse. And also the second part of that question is this, is if you were to bestow upon the listeners two of your greatest pieces of advice, what would that be? Wow. that's Those are awesome questions. Um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm a fantasist. I come from writing about supernatural phenomenon that's how i started i've written ghost stories i i'm fascinated by um catholic demonology and i've written stories about demons and um i i you know literally i have friends who are ghost investigators um and i just i love that world and i'm constantly trying to imbue sneak pit you know shoehorn some kind of supernatural um bit of business into the walking dead but i am i am very careful not to i am not allowed by robert kirkman or the <laughs> other creatives and i understand why i get it um and so in the case of the walking dead the answer is no there will never be a metaphysical angle and you might see a tease where you think wow this could be something supernatural and it's always explained and the reason for that is really simple. They, you know, we, we, the people who make all these, you know, the various iterations of the story in various medias, um, we want the, the, the reader, the viewer, the player to focus on the human, uh, allegory, the survival. We don't want any question of mystery or we, we, we want this to be a brutal, linear, gut-wrenching story of human survival. Um, and so that's why I've had my hand slapped a couple of times. I've wanted to do a few things and <laughs> I've, been, I've been pulled back. <laughs> I've been yanked back violently by Kirkman and his team, you know, which, which is great because it, it, it was a learning curve on the first couple of books and I got to know Robert so well and we, 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 we felt so comfortable with each other. Um, he gave me the next four books, um, the Woodbury, uh, Chronicles, um, to, uh, come up with the narratives myself. And I feel like responsible for Woodbury, which is the little town in the show and in the comic book. So it's, it's been an amazing, um, 
experience. And then the second part was uh, uh, three or two. Uh, some of your greatest pieces of advice or three of your greatest insights that you've had in life thus far. Yeah, um, great question. Um, because um, I my advice is different versions of pretty much the same advice to beginning writers. To my sons, I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old. Um, and my, my advice is follow your bliss, um, as um, um, Iron John used to say. <laughs> um, write, if you're a writer, write for yourself. Tell yourself a story. If you love it, if it makes you cry, if it makes you um, if it gets you excited, it will get other people excited. Um, and, and, the, and you could extrapolate from that in every um, facet of, of life on earth today. You know, I think that you should follow, you know, be true to your school, you know, follow your heart um, in all your decisions. If you have a really tough decision, just ask yourself, what, where, what, what's the feeling? What am I, what's my, I, you know, one of the greatest books ever written, I think, um, notwithstanding To Kill a Mockingbird, is that that book Malcolm Gladwell wrote about uh, about instant um, decisions often being the best. I think could, I think it was called Blink. So, Bonazinga, it was truly an honor to have you with us today. I mean, we found your your interview very fascinating. We can't thank you enough, and we can learn more about Mr. Bonazinga by going to his website. At j j a y b o n a n s i n g a dot com, you'll learn all about Mr. Bonazinga. You'll find out more information about his upcoming books, and highly, highly recommend you you go out there and buy some of these books because you know what you see humanity going against such faces of darkness, and you see a lot of great things out there. I think there are a tremendous amount of positive lessons to be learned in these uh, fascinating books, and you can catch The Walking Dead, which comes back on AMC. In October of 2015, Mr. Bodenzinga, thank you so much. Ryan, thank you so much. It was a great interview, and I'm not just saying that. You went granular in a beautiful way. I just really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Joining us now is the Angel Reader, globally respected psychic medium and past life reader, Miss Laura Lynn. We can learn more about Miss Laura Lynn by going to her website at angelreader.net. Miss Lynn, what can you tell us about Mr. Jay Bonazinga? What a fascinating man. He is, I, I really was uh, exhilarated actually listening to his, his, his commentary to you and his interview. And when I went into meditation, I was really struck quickly by the fact that I found myself speaking to a soul aspect that I was very familiar with um, through some books that I read in the past from a man named Edgar Allan Poe. And you know, Ryan, I've done, I don't know how many interviews, you know that with you, and you understand that I generally do not get into who, but about more about why or what the process was with a past life. That's what usually comes to me, but I got direct hit to, Edgar Allan Poe, and so you was, see, we we got a direct hit, we, which means that what the the Jay is a, a relative of Edgar Allan Poe. No, I would say that he was, uh, he was, he was him. Wow, 
Yes. And, um, you know, he just had to come back. He had to come back. He, he enjoyed his life. He, he enjoyed his writing and the, the being in the mind and the, the shadows of the mind is what I kept on hearing about the shadows of the mind. And he really enjoyed exploring that and bringing that exploration out to other people. And what drove him here now at this time was the advent of the uh, Internet, that he could actually get more of the information out. And so here he is. And, uh, you know, when I think about that, think about all the app that went crazy on Facebook, The Walking Dead, and, you know, how just fun it is. You know, people really enjoyed it. And I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, I'm just saying that are there any uh, types of themes or messages that you feel that Jay is conveying that are corresponding or very similar to that of Edgar Allan Poe's writings? You know, I what I'm really I, I, I'm wondering about is the fact that I believe that there was a, a book called The City and the Sea that I, I remember a book and it, it might be that title and I'm, I, I apologize. It's very close to that, that title name. And the nature of Jay's stories is basically about, you know, the, the fact that we are survivors, inherently survivors, and that we have this resilient nature and spirit about us. Okay. That was the theme, the deep theme from Edgar Allan Poe in this one story that I recall. And I feel like that's kind of the the message here is that within our human spirit or nature, that at the deepest, deepest core, we do survive or we find our ways to survive. And, you know, and, and the people who do not survive, there there is um, on a metaphysical uh, route, there's there's a there's a new way, there's a, a way back. Okay. Now, of course, Jay, I don't think got into that or is going there. Um, but with his his uh, complex nature of how he puts this together, I uh, I do feel like in there in the nature we that it gives people hope. Right now, what life lessons? Did Edgar Allan Casey learn or fail to learn that he decided to reincarnate as Jay Bonazinga for? And like, how are the um, how are those two lifetimes comparably similar, or different as far as their uh, designated spiritual and life lessons that they came here well, to learn? The life lessons, I would say, this wasn't really about a lesson. This was more about a fascination. I feel like his his spirit was driven to continue a path that he deeply explored and appreciated. So, you know, I I feel like he's here to entertainment is really important to the human spirit. To to uh, we all need to have that um, space where we can be entertained, and that's what is how we learn about ourselves. And Alan Poe was an expert at that, and he knew it, and he enjoyed that. So I wouldn't say it's m- more about fi- teaching himself a, a new lesson. I think it was more about bringing us entertainment and bringing us something to think about and uh, enjoy to enjoy. And, you know, exploring those corners of the mind, as he puts it, is fascinating and, uh, and something that so many people appreciate. 
and Jay now. And uh, I, I just I think that he really wanted to explore how much depth and how deep he could bring these words that he appreciates so much out and how many people would capture them. It's more about just the fact that he knew he had a new audience. Okay. And is there anything that Jay can do to connect with the essence and the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe, who he was in a previous lifetime? Does that essence and spirit of Edgar Allan Poe exist somewhere? And can Jay connect with that consciousness and kind of, let's say, I don't know, get a lot of inspiration, get a lot of motivation, get a lot of ideas and, um, you know, a lot of energy from that spirit. Now that he's identified, we've identified the fact that he was Edgar Allan Poe in a previous life incarnation. Well, Edgar Allan Poe already works within Jay. It's the higher self. It's the sense of energy that's already one and the same. So it's already happening. And uh, that's what, that's, the energy, um, what, I, what I was getting was that Jay's style of writing was Edgar's style. Edgar always had in his mind the ending before the beginning. It's, he, he knew what the, how the story would end, and from that he would create. And w- while I don't know if that's something that was written down about him or documented about him in any interviews or not, that is exactly how I heard it, is the the ending creates the beginning. So they flow, or he flows within him already. Is there any particular person that Edgar Allan Coe was living with or that has reincarnated in a different form to be with Jay for this lifetime? His wife, Jay's wife, um, was, and then he'll, he'll probably laugh at this, was his mother in a past life. Really? Uh, <laughs> the only reason, uh, I, I captured that just in a little short note um, within the meditation. Uh, I was seeing faces and familiar energy. And what I got was mom, his mother, and I believe his mother was very, very, very religious. Um, she really did adore him and wanted to be back and this lifetime there might be some things that happen where his wife jay's wife does mother him a little bit um that would be interesting that would be an interesting conversation and i i'm sure this will give them both a good laugh but that is what i'm picking up miss laura lynn the angel reader thank you for that very intriguing analysis of Mr. Jay Bonazinga. And to learn more about Miss Laura Lynn and to get a one more than welcome. <laughs> yeah, and to get a one on one reading with Miss Laura Lynn, please go to our website at angelreader.net. Thank you so much, Miss Lynn. Thank you, Ryan. Joining us now is globally respected psychic medium and energy healer, Miss Carrie O'Connor. You can learn more about Miss Carrie O'Connor and get a reading with Miss Carrie O'Connor by going to her website at CarrieO'Connor.com. Miss O'Connor, what can you tell us about Mr. Jay Bonazinga? I love Mr. Jay Bonazinga's energy. I noticed throughout the whole interview, Ryan, that he was speaking the words of frontier and he used the word doorway a lot and going to the doorway. He's a whole lucid book about bringing the character to the doorway. And that's, he's a human soul that came in 
standing in this golden doorway, which shows me that he's a frontier person, that he's not afraid to go into the, the dark dimensions. He's an explorer, researcher, and he leaves a pathway for other people to follow. So that's the beautiful thing about him. He's got the warrior spirit. He's not afraid to get stuck in doorway, which most of humanity does. They want they wait for those frontier people to come around to leave that lit path so they can explore it. And he's not afraid to go way down in the dark with his horror writing. I love that one his biggest idol was Joseph Campbell and he's just got a beautiful, beautiful spirit. I love his energy. Do you think that he may have been a uh, writer in a previous lifetime? Oh, God, yes. He's written for a long time. I also saw him as a playwright way back in the um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. He's been behind the scenes, and he's been in front of the scenes. I see him as an actor. But I also see him as an architect, like working on the t- um, on the, uh, like the play, I mean the, the set. So he has what I call the behind-the-scenes flexibility, but he's also not afraid to go up um, in the spotlight where some people are more comfortable behind the scenes. Some people have to have that spotlight, but he's got beautiful, energetic flexibility. He's got such love in his heart. I loved when I listened to him talking about his wife. His heart was just beating this really gold energy. He's very good to those people that are in his, his circle, his inner circle. He just really allows them to hold space and, and bring the best out in them as they allow him to bring the best out in himself. So that's that real frontier energy. And we need those frontier door opener people right now because humanity is in this period right now, especially for the end of this year, where we're all being asked to take that next step. And our ego and our mind keeps us locked in that doorway, and people like him allow us to take that next step. And so that's his energy, and what he does is very, very important for the world right now. Okay, because he goes out and he talks and he writes his uh, prolific stories about experiences with the dark, he talks about the walking dead and zombie apocalypse, if you write about that, are you necessarily lowering your energy to the resonance of that dark energy, or can you remain uh, very high frequency, high vib- vibrancy, and write about the dark? Is there a way you can do that and not be caught up and be, Absolutely. I guess, pulled Absolutely. into the darkness? Absolutely. And I've seen both things happen, where people that write about it, their whole energy looks dark, their everything, it's like they zip up into this zombie-like kind of um, character that becomes part of their energy field. You can write about it like Jay does, and he holds a posture like he goes in there with that shield. That's like that warrior frontier energy. So he's hardwired to go down into it. So much the way I see it is imagine somebody in a wetsuit, and they go down to the bottom parts of the ocean where it's all black, and you don't see a thing. You can't see in front of your face. He's not afraid to go in that. But that wetsuit quality of his energy allows him to not get hooked up in it and get stuck down there. So he has that bridger, so he can tell people what it looks like to be in that darkest part and put, like, a light there. That's where I see that light path. So he allows people to go through there, but he doesn't get stuck in there. And a lot, of, and that's an art within itself because he has so much heart-based energy. It allows energies not to latch onto him and hook him into those dimensions because, as I said before, I've seen many people work in this, and even healers that work in real dark arts, if they don't, really have that energetic shield, they can start taking on those qualities of the lower energies. Miss Carrie O'Connor, thank you for your great and insightful analysis to Mr. Jay Vanazinga. To learn more about Miss Carrie O'Connor and to get a reading with Miss Carrie O'Connor, please go to our website at carrieoconnor.com. Thank you so much, Miss O'Connor. Thank you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure. Love you. Joining us now is the Astrophenom. Our astrologer, Miss Constance Stellis. 
You can learn more about Miss Stellis and get your chart reading done with Miss Stellis by going to her website at ConstanceStellis.com. Miss Stellis, what do the stars have in store for Mr. Jay Bonazinga? Well, he certainly has a fabulous last name, that's for sure. <laughs> that's nothing to do with the, <laughs> with the stars. Um, Jason is uh, a Capricorn with a Libra moon. And those two planets, um, and I should also say a Libra rising. So he's got double Libra influence, which I think is a, an artistic uh, source. And um, however, his moon and his sun are in a challenging relationship, which means that he has a lot of internal, um, well, yeah, you said geyser. I mean, a lot of internal energies that are not harmonious. He has to work very hard to keep everything uh, in sync. And sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. Um, and his communication skills, I mean, I, we know he's a writer, are are very, very strong. But he he uh, he may be plagued by nightmares and ghosts and 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 unsure things from the from the world beyond that he has a hard time fitting into his uh, daily life uh, or waking life. So the arts are his outlet, and he truly needs uh, that uh, that outlet. Um, otherwise, gaboom. Um, and by that I mean uh, he would have um, a lot of temper tantrums and a lot of uh, seething anger episodes and um, uh, difficulty with um, people less intelligent than him. Um, so he, he seems to have found a very good um, outlet for himself. He um, he also he's very ambitious and uh, focused on what it is he wants to um, achieve, and um, he has um, two other planets, Mars and uh, we all have these planets. It's not just him, but Mars and Uranus in a challenging aspect, uh, as well as the sun and the moon. So it's an interesting thing with people's charts. The people with the easiest charts frequently do nothing with their life. They're just bopping along and kind of singing a song. Um, the people who have more challenging charts are compelled energetically to express themselves or to do something with the energies that are inside of them. And he has is fortunate for, or an artistic person also, that Jupiter is in the second house of money. So he, he, through his writing, through his art, through his imagination, he can actually make a living and probably better uh, than just uh, um, a living. So lots of things to balance uh, in, in, his, in his chart. Um, I know sometimes we're interested in, in um, past lives here. And um, he has... Let me just say one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, wait, one, two. I'm counting up the 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 yin signs and the yang signs. One, two, three, four, five, six. So his chart is slightly more yin than yang. Yin being receptive and perceiving um, um, 
feelings and 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 attracting things to him rather than going out aggressively assertively which would be yang um nothing to do with sexuality and i think that um his imagination gets the better of him sometimes and he is so absorptive that he has to kind of de- detox from his own uh his own thoughts which can tend to be gloomy and um uh, morbid. <laughs> uh, do you think that there's a, a chance or any indication that he might have been Edgar Allan Poe in a previous lifetime, as Laura definitely asserts? Yeah. Um, it's not. The energies have compatibility. I'm trying to remember whether Poe was, in fact, a Capricorn. It, it doesn't. You look, look it up while we're talking, Edgar Allan Poe, because I can't remember if he's, he's um a Scorpio or a Capricorn. So it doesn't mean all Capricorns reincarnate from other Capricorns. Yeah, Allan Poe is January 19th. Okay, so he's at the very end of what year? 1809. 1809. And I know there's a lot of... Um, um, He's either at the very end of of um, uh, Capricorn, or he is um, January at the very beginning of um, 1809, January 18th um, of uh, of Aquarius. But I think it's going to be Capricorn. So that is uh, uh, an energetic connection between the two of them. And uh, it's a heavy one because uh, Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, and then it doesn't mean all Capricorns are Edgar Allan Poe. But the the um, let's see the the weight of Saturn is something that both of these people had to contend with. And um, the other thing that I think, yeah, uh, Edgar Allan Poe had um a Pisces moon and um that energy is very different from because he was a poet and I don't think that Jason is a poet he's a writer he's an imaginative person but in a different medium and also Edgar Allan Poe really had a tough time with uh, with drugs and narcotics and um they there are many theories about how he died, and um, I think that um, Jason has more discipline than that. You know, maybe some temptations here. But um, what does he? I don't know if he is reincarnated Edgar Allan Poe, but the macabre, the dark, the spirit world of the dark uh, was fascinating to Poe in his poems, and it is also fascinating to to Jason. That's, that's yeah. excellent. Yeah, I mean, I think Miss, that that's a good call on Laura's uh, part. Miss Constance Stellis, the astrophenom, thank you so much for your real in-depth and great analysis to Mr. Jay Bonazinga. To learn more about Miss Stellis and to get an astrological chart reading done with Miss Stellis, highly recommend you do. Please go to ConstanceStellis.com. Thank you so much, Miss Stellis. My pleasure. Joining us now is globally respected psychic medium. Miss Lisa Kaza. You can learn more about Miss Kaza. Get a reading with Miss Kaza by going to her website at lisakaza.com. Miss Kaza, what can you tell us about Mr. J. Bonazinga? 
Hey, Ryan. Well, I actually found um, the main thing that I was shown were his um, past lives. Now, I have to be honest, like there were so many different past lives um, where a lot of them he actually unfortunately saw a lot of you know real life horror and, and violence and 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 so forth and a lot of suffering and what really struck me was that um i would have to say there's two past lives here that are almost mirroring each other exactly where he was in england in in both of these lifetimes where um if you know, like back in the 1400s and the 1500s, um, they did a lot of torturing. You know, they, you know, people would be um, going to court for whatever they're they're being accused of something or other, and they would take them in and into the basement of the Tower of London and torture them and torture them to the point where they would either a uh, give you a false confession. Or B, they expire. Or okay, I'll say that. And why I said expire, I don't know. That's old language. But it die, in other words. So he 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 did. Ha he was in this position where he was either the torturer, like the head head guy doing it, or he was the torturer's sidekick, where he assisted in these proceedings. Um, but the thing is, what I found so, so interesting was that I was catapulted, catapulted to the here and now, and I heard that, that he actually has a very deep, strong love for guardian angels. And the next thing that I heard was that, now this is going back, I'll have to say like his, maybe his first or his second lifetime ever on this earth, um, where he, uh, well, let's backtrack for a second. When he reads anything about Jesus or, or Moses or any other biblical um, prophets or, or the likes, well, he, he knows that there's more to the story, and it's because he was there. And he's it's like, either he, there like, during the, during, was he there during the, the time of Moses and the time of Yes, Jesus? yes, he was a follower. He was a follower of Jesus and Moses and okay. lived in the Holy Land. So, and sorry, I was going to say, like, as a result of that, um, uh, traditional religious interpretations of Bible stories probably don't ring all that true to him because he knows what really happened back then. So I'd have to say that as a result, he, he most likely follows his own religious and, and spiritual path. So I found that this these lifetime that lifetime here so much in contrast to his later lifetimes where he was he was witnessing all this horror and actually taking part in it. So as far as him taking part in this horror, is there a karmic balance that is that is outstanding for this induced torture or participation in this torture? I Karmic debt, or is yeah, that what you're talking debt. about? Like, you know, they say like, is there cause and effect? Is there was the was the torture that he was partaking was that part of his greater evolution? Was that was that to was that does that close a life? Was he forgiven for the torture? Was there a particular he, reason why he did the torture? Was a part of it? Well, 
Well, it was it's it's difficult to explain. You try to put yourself in a perspective where like, you're in a situation in which you actually don't have a choice. You don't. He didn't have a choice in what he did back then. He was given orders and he had to follow them. If he did not follow them, then he'd be charged with treason and then he'd be going through the same thing as, as, as the poor victim. So he was stuck between a rock and a hard place. But as far as you know, karmic debt is concerned, firstly we need to realize that everything that we go through in any of our lifetimes, it has specific purpose. Uh, you know, we, as it says, you know, we apparently um, choose what life to live before we're even incarnated in this lifetime. So he chose to do that for, but for whatever reason, I'm I'm unsure of. But there is no really no karmic debt here. It, it it's it's more of him fulfilling whatever needs or experiences that his own spirit required back then or wanted back in those in in those lifetimes. It was learning and growth for him in in a sense but there's there's no karmic debt here at, at all and he is known as a uh, incredible writer and he's able to really do great characters go really in depth is this the first lifetime that you pick up on where he's fully utilizing creativity is this a lifetime of creativity creative expression um i wasn't shown in any of the other lifetimes but just um off the fly, I'm going to have to say that this would, if this isn't his first lifetime, it would be most definitely be his second, no more than that. Oh, so is, he's pretty new. Yeah, yeah, he is. But uh, the thing is, though, you can't look at him new in that respect because he's actually a very old soul. Okay, so I mean, he was here with the time of Jesus. So all right, I'm just curious. So, he, so he's here, time of Jesus. Then he got the 1400s. And then he's in a net. So, how many lifetimes have you been able to garner so far? Is it three or? Oh my good lord! Uh, many, like there. Well, I'm confused. Like, how can he? How does he have many lifetimes and still be a new soul? No, he's not a new soul. Okay. He's no, 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 not new to writing. Okay. Okay, he's new to writing, but uh, he's definitely not a new soul. He's a very old soul. But but new to to writing, like this would be his first. If it's not his first lifetime as as a writer, it's his second. But no more than that is what I meant. Okay. Do you happen to have any kind of communication with his higher self to be able to tell uh, what his higher self is planning for its next physical life or next uh, phase of evolution? Um. I actually see here, like he's trying his best to. Um, send out the message, you know, to humanity, like what he desires for humanity, you know, coming together, um, regardless of race and religion, in order to reach a common goal. That's what I'm hearing from that. But the thing is, unfortunately, people aren't taking, they're not hearing that message. Like if you take a look at uh, a lot of his books or, or The Walking Dead, they're not, they're not, fully grasping what the hidden message really is all about. So I believe that he is going to come back relatively quickly, actually. And he will be more so geared towards the metaphysical and the spiritual. I feel that he'd be more uh, more open of, uh, let's say, like a spiritual teacher um, 
you know, it won't be, he won't be as um, well known as, for example, Stuart Wilde or, or Gandhi or things like that. But he's definitely going to be working towards that next. And he, I see him as actually sticking to that particular path for the next. Because I see him actually coming back quite a few times yet. Uh, Miss Lisa Casa, that was a really great and uh, interesting analysis. So thank you so much. And to learn more about Miss Casa. Please go to our website at lisacaza.com. You can also go on there and get a reading with her. Kaza, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, always a pleasure, Ryan. Yeah. Okay, everyone, that concludes tonight's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Very special thanks to our featured guest, Mr. Jay Bonazinga. And special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Laura Lynn, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Constance Dallas and Miss Lisa Caza. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. So the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Have an unbelievable rest of the week, and we'll see you back here soon. Take good care. There are many misconceptions about meditation. Most of them lead you to believe that meditation is difficult and that it takes many years to master. Not true. Ajay and Boris has taught meditation since 1973 to thousands of students around the world. You can have deep, profound meditations from the very first sitting with Effortless Mind Meditation. Join Ajay and for a free webinar on Effortless Mind Meditation Thursday, July 30th from 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific Time. Go to EffortlessMindMeditation.com to register now. You too can experience the many benefits of meditation, deep relaxation, reduced depression and anxiety, increased vitality and mental clarity, improved health, normalized blood pressure and more. Discover how to meditate effortlessly, achieve deep peace in minutes and reverse the harmful effects of aging. Go to EffortlessMindMeditation.com to register for a free webinar on Effortless Mind Meditation today. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.